Now, I want to begin this morning with a quote by an author named Anne Rice. And uh, Anne Rice uh, is a famous author. Many of you may have heard of her. Uh, she, uh, she wrote uh, in the genre of uh, gothic vampire novels. And so uh, maybe some of you have read some of her novels. Um, she wrote uh, The Vampire Diaries. Uh, she wrote an interview with the vampire, which was later turned into a movie um, starring Tom Cruise with long hair. <laughs> uh, but she, she wrote these books, and uh, at one point of her in her life, this was probably about 15 years ago, Anne Rice became a Christian. And at that time, she stopped writing these books about vampires, and she started writing Christian-themed theme novels. And uh, one of them was called uh, Christ Our Lord Out of Egypt. It was a really cool book. I read it. It sort of had to do with the first 30 years of Jesus' life that weren't recorded in, in the Bible at all. So, like, what were Jesus' friends like, and did he, you know, did he, uh, you know, do miracles even when he was a little boy? You know, it was a great little book. But about five years ago, uh, Anne, Wright, uh, Anne Rice came out on Facebook, and she said that she quit Christianity, or she quit going to church. And here's what she writes on her Facebook page. She said this, For those who care, and I understand if you don't, Today, I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being a Christian or to being part of Christianity. It is simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For 10 years, I've tried. I've failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow nothing less. What strikes me about this quote is that Anne Rice is saying, look, I'm still committed to Jesus. I still love Jesus. I still want to follow Jesus. I just want nothing to do with the church. Right? I, and and she, this is, I mean, this is becoming very common in our world today. I mean, Anne Rice is not alone. I mean, there are many, many people um, in, in our church, in our, in our uh, culture, who say, yes, I love Jesus, but why do I have to be involved in the church? I really don't want to be involved in the church. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I love Jesus. I'll take him, but hold the church, please. And there's a lot of reasons why people, uh, you know, are, are like this. Um, uh, number one is, uh, maybe like Anne Rice, we've been hurt by the church. You know, maybe you or one of your loved ones, you know, you've, uh, somebody in the church damaged you. Maybe a church leader damaged you. Uh, or, or maybe you, uh, you know, you're just, you've seen so much uh, sin in the church that you feel like the place is just filled with hypocrites. So you say, look, I love Jesus. I'm not going to disown him, but I'm not going to associate myself with his followers. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said that the greatest argument against Christianity is Christians. And maybe that's kind of how you feel. But there's also those who just, you know, we, we live in an individualistic culture, you know, we're, we're, we're Americans, we're rugged individualists, you know, we're, we, we're kind of into personal non-involvement, and, uh, you know, many of us, we're just so individualistic, and the way we, we view our re religion and spirituality is this, it's a very private thing. Why do I need to join a church? Why do I need to be part of an, a, a body of believers? Can I be a Christian on my own? And so a lot of it's just kind of we live in this individualistic culture. But others of us are just so busy. You know, we're, we're busy and we've got, you know, our busy lives and we're going to work and we're taking kids to soccer practice and, well, you know, the kids are going to school and we've got things that we're doing. We just don't have time to be deeply engaged with the church. I mean, it's hard. 
you got to carve space out to be part of the church. And many of us just don't have time to do that. And so we think to ourselves, well, can I just read my Bible on my own? Can I just stay home? Why do I need the church? And so many of us, you know, although like Anne Rice, we're still uh, grabbing onto Jesus, we're beginning to disengage with the, body, with the body of believers. We're disengaging with the church. Why do I need to be involved with the church? Well, this morning, what I want to do is, is, is answer the question, what is at stake when we disengage? What is at stake when we say, you know what? I quit. I give up. I'm throwing in the towel. I don't want to be a part of this thing. What is at stake when we don't get involved in a small group and, and community in the church? What's at stake when we're not using our gifts in the church? What is at stake? And the answer is God's mission, God's work in the world is at stake. You see, God is doing a work in the world. God is, is, is uh, furthering his kingdom in the world. He's building his kingdom. And in order for God to do that, he needs all of us to be involved. It takes a village. It takes all of us working together to further God's work. And so it matters that we stay engaged. And the way I want to do this is by looking at Nehemiah too. I want to, I want to look at, at Nehemiah because um, Nehemiah, uh, you know, he's, he's doing God's work. You know, this is, uh, he's building the temple. He's, he's engaged in sort of this rebuilding project. And today in chapter 2, Nehemiah realizes that he can't do this alone. He begins on his own. He gets this burden and this vision. He wants to build, you know, the temple. Uh, and today in this chapter, he realizes, you know, I can't do this alone. If we're going to be successful if we're going to finish the work, we've got to do it together. This is what Nehemiah learns, that building the temple takes a village. And so what I'm going to do this morning is just go verse by verse through chapter 2. And I'm going to make some comments, and I'm going to pull out, and we're going to see how, how God needs all of us working together to build his kingdom. And so just a little background here before we get into it. You remember uh, Nehemiah was written during the period of exile, uh, the Jewish exile, and uh, 586 B.C., uh, the Babylonians came and they sieged the city of Jerusalem and they burned the palaces and they, and they broke down the walls and they left the city in ruins and they carted God's people off to Babylon to be servants and slaves, 800 miles in chains in another country to be servants and slaves. And there they lived in Babylon until the Persians came in and took over. And then King Cyrus gave the order for the Jews to go back and rebuild their temple. And so Zerubbabel, uh, in 539, went back to Jerusalem and began to rebuild. But the building wasn't going well. And uh, the, the, the walls still laid in ruins. And Nehemiah learns about this, and he's burdened by it, and he realizes that something needs to be done. He's got to go back and rebuild the walls. And that's where we pick up chapter 2. He's, he's sad, he's burdened, he wants to go back. And uh, he's in the presence of the king. You remember, he was the king's cupbearer. And uh, we'll just begin here, uh, 2 verse 1. In the month of Nisan, which again is right after the month of Toyota, I um, thought I'd milk it for just one more week. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but the sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad 
When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. We'll stop there. And so he's a cupbearer to the king. He's in the king's presence. And the king notices that he's sad. He says, Nehemiah, why are you sad? And Nehemiah says, well, how can't I be sad? My city, my, my home, uh, you know, my home, uh, my, my, my people. Uh, our city is lying in ruins. And God's work is, is, uh, is being postponed. And this, this is, isn't right. And he's, he's upset. He tells the king this. And then in verse 4, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? And so the king says, look, uh, okay, well, what do you want from me then? Now, at this point, Nehemiah's got to take a risk. Because here he is, you know, he's got this burden. He wants to go back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And the king says, well, what do you want for me to do for you then? What do you want me to do? And Nehemiah, I'm sure he's just thinking, okay, I can I could make the big ask, but this is super scary. Because I could come off presumptuous, I could lose my job, I could even be killed for telling him what I want. And here's what he does. He takes a deep breath, and he prays a prayer to God, and then he makes this big ask to the king of Artaxerxes. And so he look, look what he says in verse 5. He says, uh, And then I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Jerusalem, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And so he says, here's what I want. I want you to send me to Jerusalem so I can go back and rebuild it. You know, he's going like this. You know, what's the king going to do to me? What's he gonna, how's he going to respond? Is he going to say, off with his head, send him away, that's presumptuous. But look what happens. This is verse 6. <clears throat> verse 6 says, And the king said to me, and the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone? And when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me and when I had given him a time. And so the king says, sure, you can go back. Here, Nehemiah, he, he stepped out on a limb. He took a risk. You know, he didn't know what was going to happen. The king says, sure, go ahead. He gives him a blank check. And Nehemiah says, well, why, why quit while I'm ahead? And so he continues to, to ask him for things, everything that he needs. In verse 7, he says, um, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. And so Nehemiah asked for two more things. He says, good, okay, you say I can go, awesome. Here's what I'm going to need. I'm going to need a, a letter for, uh, uh, to, to keep me safe on my passage to Jerusalem. It's 800 miles. It's a dangerous journey. He says, I want letters so that people will protect me on my way so I can get there safely. And the king says, sure, you can take that. And he says, I also want letters to give to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. And so apparently the king owned a forest. He owned land all, the, all around Persia. And uh, he says, I want letters so that uh, they'll give me lumber so that I can rebuild Jerusalem. The king says, sure. And so uh, Nehemiah's got letters for safe passage. He has letters to get lumber. And then I love the way uh, he, he says here at the very end after he gets everything that he asked for. It says, the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Now I love this little phrase, the good hand of God was upon me. Have you ever experienced that? 
No, usually you don't experience this unless you step out in faith like Nehemiah did. Unless you begin to take risks, to step out, to do what God's calling you to do, you're not going to experience the good hand of God being upon you. You know, usually before I step out in faith, I want to know that the good hand is upon me before I take a risk, right, you know? Uh, And I remember I was younger, and somebody asked me to uh, preach a sermon one time. And I've told you before, I'm very introverted, and, uh, you know, I was terrified to to get up and speak, and so I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And so they kept on bothering me, and and I prayed to God. I said, God, if you will tell me that you're with me, then I'll get up and preach. And you know what? God never did. I was terrified all the way up to the point where I got up to speak. But as I took a risk and I stepped off the ledge and I began to speak, I realized that God caught me. And I, and I discovered the good hand of the Lord was upon me. And maybe you're sitting on something today. Maybe, maybe God is calling you to get involved in some work and it's been in your mind and you've been mulling it over and you've been saying, you know, I should do this and I should probably do that and maybe God's calling me to do this. And you're waiting for God to give you a sign to assure you that, you're, that he's with you. Well, listen, so often that comes after risk. You've got to step off the ledge, and then you discover, nope, God's not in that. Or you discover, lo and behold, the hand of the good Lord is upon you. Where do you need to step out today like Nehemiah? When you do that, you discover so often that God's with you. He's going to be with you. So Nehemiah steps off the ledge, he asks the king for these papers, and here he goes on this risky journey to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And he takes the 800-mile journey, he's safe all the way through, and then we'll pick up in verse 11. Let's look what happens when he finally gets to Jerusalem. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days, and then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate and the, and the dragon spring and the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And then I went on the fountain gate and the king's pool. There was no room for the animal that was under, the, uh, under me to pass. Then I went up to the, by night, uh, in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the, gal- the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. And so uh, Nehemiah takes this long journey. He finally gets to Jerusalem. And what's the first thing he does? He takes a private ride around the city in the middle of the night. He gets on his horse, and he starts riding around the city, riding riding around the rubble there in the middle of the night all by himself. And it reminds me of one great leader that I I listen to his podcast all the time. He, He said that great leaders, in order to get vision, expose themselves to the rubble. They expose themselves to the problem. And when you expose yourself and you get a good, hard, long look at the problem, it births vision in you to get involved. And so if, you're, if your burden is the plight of the poor, expose yourself to the poor. If your burden is to lead churches to growth and, and, and uh, uh, evangelism, then expose yourself to churches that are not doing well. If your burden is teaching, then go to a room where teaching's not very good. 
He's exposing himself to the problem. He's riding around the rubble in the middle of the night all alone, getting a vision, getting a passion. But here's what I want you to see. Up until this point uh, in, in the narrative, Nehemiah is doing everything that he's doing alone. And if you look from verse 1 all the way down to verse 16, the personal pronoun I is uh, mentioned over and over again. In the very beginning, the king says, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, I want to build the walls. And then he, he, he steps out on faith. He risks all on his own. And then he takes this 800-mile journey by himself, and then he finally gets to Jerusalem. And notice all the personal pronouns in this little paragraph, 11 through 16. He, said, uh, he says, I went to Jerusalem, and I rose in the night, and I had men with me. He had a couple of men with him. And I told no one what I was going to do. Personal pronouns everywhere. But this is a turning point in the story. Because after this ride around Jerusalem at night, the personal pronouns turn to we. It's, it's, you know, it's Nehemiah doing this thing all by himself. But after this lonely ride, in the morning he wakes up, he goes to all the people and he says, let us build, we need to do this. It's almost as if Nehemiah there in the dark as he's riding around Jerusalem and he's looking at all the rubble, he realizes, uh, I can't do this by myself. If this is ever going to be completed, this is not a work I can do on my own. And so let's look at verse 17. He says, um, he, he, he said to all the people the next morning, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that was upon me for good and also the words of the king who had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the work, but... When Sambalat the Hanorite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant of Geshem of Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will rise and build, but you have no portion or right in this claim in Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah, the, the, who began in, in, in isolation, is, is now with all of God's people who are together working to build God, J Jerusalem as a collective. This becomes a collaborative effort. And all of chapter 3, I'm not going to read it, but all of chapter 3 shows that there are people working next to each other. This person is working next to this person, and that person is working next to that person. And I won't read the chapter because it, totally, it would totally bore you um, more than you are now. But um, all of God's people are doing God's work together. And here's the point I want to make this morning. If we're going to finish the work that God has given us in this world, if we're going to finish the work that God has given us to do in the city, if we're going to build the kingdom, if we're going to join Jesus in the work that he's doing in the world, we've got to do it together. This project is way too big for one person. When God calls a person to do his work, he always calls them to join and to work as a collaborative effort. This is the doctrine of the church. When Jesus came into the world, you know, Jesus could have redeemed, I mean, he, he, he died on the cross, he did redeem the world, but he could have just, you know, stayed here and saved everybody himself. But what does he do? Jesus comes on the scene 
and he begins to gather people together. And he gathers 12 disciples and he gathers followers. Why? Not so that they could just sit in a little huddle and sing Kumbaya, maybe for a little bit, but he's called them to work together to accomplish a mission. And God has called all of us to work together to accomplish his mission. Uh, There's a great doctrine called the priesthood of all believers. And what this means is that the work of God in the world is not left to ministers. All of God's people play a role. Every single one of us has a job. Every single one of us has a role to play in the work that God is doing. You know, uh, Martin Luther came up with this idea. It was in the, in, you know, the 1500s. And before that time, it was the priest. You know, everybody looked at the priests. They were the ones who were to do God's work. But Martin Luther came on, com- came on the scene and said, you know, the shoemaker? You know, the businessman? You know, all the laity ought to be involved in God's work. All of us are priests. All of us are workers. All of us have a role to play in God's mission. Uh, When I was younger, uh, I was, um, you know, I I went to school, obviously, and I went to college after that, and I worked really hard as a student. And the teacher could get up and give me any assignment, and I would, I would get, I was very ambitious. I would just get on, get on it. And so, uh, you know, read five books. I would do that. Uh, you know, write a 20-page paper. Oh, yes, I'll just let me at it. I'll do it. You know, take this exam, memorize all these Hebrew verbs, whatever. I could memorize it. I could do it. But my heart began to shudder whenever my teacher got up and said, here, I've got an assignment, and it's a group project. Anybody, anybody else hate that? Because inevitably, I would get going, and there would be some loafer who would take advantage of me and start, you know, using my work as his own. Or we'd all have a different vision, you know, I want to go this way and somebody else wants to go that way and somebody else wants to go the other way. You know, or there'd be some contentious, irritating, annoying person in the group. And, you know, group projects, I mean, who likes those? Those are so hard. Well, God comes to us and says, look, I've got work to do in the world. And you say, yes, what is my work? And God says, it's a group project. Y'all got to work together. So hard and yet so beautiful, isn't it? When all of us join together and when we all get together to accomplish God's work, that is an incredibly beautiful thing. And if you've ever watched a symphony or maybe ever been part of a a symphony, an an orchestra, I mean, how beautiful is it when you're you're playing that music and it's, it's just, it's going well, it's coming off right and you do a really good job and at the very end, everybody stands up and applauds and what do you say? You say, we did it. It's not just I did it, it's we did it. It's thrilling and it's beautiful and this is what God is calling us to do in the world. God's work takes every single person working together. It's a group project. And what this means is that you are vitally needed by the church and the church is vitally needed by you. Listen, we're, we're a group of people that God has brought together here. And do you, did you know that none of you are here by accident? Every single one of you have something vital to contribute to God's work. And if you don't do what only you can do, all of us miss out, and the work and, and, and God's work in the world is hindered. 
You are vitally needed by the church, and the church is vitally needed by you. You know, there are certain hands that only you can hold. There are certain certain wounds that only you can mend. There are certain work that only you can do because you bring gifts and you are absolutely unique. And every single one of us have a vital role to play. In the New Testament, there's a guy named uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul. And he, he has this metaphor for the church that describes this perfectly. It's the metaphor of the body. Let me read it to you. <clears throat> he says, this is uh, in a book called 1 Corinthians. It's a letter that he wrote. But he says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the, sen- where would the sense of hearing? Where's the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And so think about your body, Paul says. He says, if your body's going to do any work in the world, it takes a collective effort. All of your organs, every part of your body needs to work together. And if one body says, nope, I'm not going to do this, then the work that you need to do is going to be hindered. Because just like a body, all of us are one. Can we all look at your neighbor and say, we are one? And then look at your neighbor and say, we are good looking. (laughs) You could do that if you want. And just as when you get married to your spouse, uh, you know, it's not just your spouse that you get married to. You get get the in-laws. It's a package deal. And when you come to Jesus, you also get his church. And just like a body is one and yet many members, every single one of us must work interdependently. And every single one of us must play our role so that the work, in the, the, the work that God has in the world gets done. We are needed by the church. Every single one of us. You are vitally needed by the church and the church is vitally needed by you. But like I said, this is very hard, isn't it? Because all of us bring gifts and unique things. All of us have works and talents and abilities that we bring. But you want to know what we also bring? Sin. (laughs) We we confessed our sins together during worship, and there's a good reason for that. Because all of us bring our dysfunctions, and all of us bring our brokenness and our selfishness and our sin into the church. And for that reason, many of, many of you just, you know, you, you, you're here for a little while, and then you start seeing other people for what they really are, and you think, I'm, I can't do this, I'm out of here. Just like Anne Rice, I can't take it anymore. I love, jo- John Ortberg uh, wrote a book called Everybody's Normal Until You Get to Know Them. And there's this movie, uh, maybe some of you have seen it, the movie As Good As It Gets, 
And uh, Helen Hunt is, uh, she's racked with ambivalence towards Jack N Nicholson. And Jack Nicholson is her, is her boyfriend, you know. He, he kind of grabbed onto her and attached himself to her. And he's her boyfriend, and he's kind, and he's generous to her and her sick son. But he's also agoraphobic, which means he's a germaphobe. He's obsessive-compulsive, and he's terminally offensive. And in desperation, Helen Hunt finally cries to her mother. She calls her mom, and she, she cries to her mom, I just want a normal boyfriend. And her mom responds in empathy, Everybody wants one of those. There's no such thing, dear. And you might be saying, I just want a normal church. I just want a church where everybody's just normal. You know, everybody's nice. There's no such thing, dear. And if you finally find the perfect church, don't join it. Because you'll ruin it. Because here's the confession that we make every week. Every single one of us is more broken than we realize. Do you think you're, you, you think you're bad? Guess what? It's worse. You're worse than you think you are. And all of us are. There is solidarity in our sin. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is all about saving sinners and bringing them together into one big, messed up, foolish body. And he is pleased to do his work in the world with us. So don't give up. Please don't throw in the towel. We need you. And you need us. And God's work in the world is accomplished only as we work together. And this is why, this is why the gospel is so amazing. Because it says that there is enough grace to go around. And God has enough forgiveness and enough power to redeem every single one of us. And so uh, if you want to hold up your little uh, community group thing again, I'm, this is the application to the sermon. Uh, I, maybe you're afraid, to, maybe it's a big risk for you to join a community group. And maybe you look over those things and you say, you know, maybe I'll do that someday. You know, I want to encourage you to step out in faith and maybe the good hand of God will be upon you. God's going to go with you. And you have a part to play. A community group is a great place to get involved. You are unique and you get together and you begin to, to contribute your own unique gifting and ability to that group. Get involved in a community group. Get involved in service in the church. Engage with the church so that we can do the work that God's called us to do together in the city. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this story of Nehemiah who began uh, sort of as a lone ranger, uh, went to Jerusalem and then realized, God, that he needs all of God's people if the work's going to get done. And we pray, God, as we, as, we, as we learn this morning about the priesthood of all believers, about the fact that the church is a, is a group of people that you join together to do work in tandem and interdependently. God, give us grace for one another. Give us grace for ourselves. And Lord, I pray that you would use us for your glory as we take little steps of faith to get involved. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we're going to take communion.